Hello, this is Jeff Treisman. This is Matt Schmidt. And you're listening to Impolitik. One of the most serious challenges our countries face is the specter of socialism. It's the wrecker of nations and destroyer of societies. That socialism and communism are not about justice. They are not about equality. They are not about lifting up the poor. And they are certainly not about good of the nation. Socialism and communism are about one thing only, power for the ruling class. Today, I repeat a message for the world that I have delivered at home. America will never be a socialist country. Welcome, everybody, to a very special edition of Impolitik. Uh, in this episode, we've decided to experiment with a new format where we interview two separate guests to get their insight on really the most pressing issues facing the world today. Now, with that said, our first guest is Professor Robert Wiley, Assistant Professor of Political Science and Director of the Political Economy Program at Ashland University in Ohio. Uh, Professor Wiley's work is largely focused on political theory and studies the evolution of political thinking over time. He teaches courses on political philosophy, political economy, and apropos today's episode, Marxist Socialist Thought. Professor, welcome to In Politic. Thanks for having me. Right, let's start with the basics of political economy, uh, especially for our listeners who may not be familiar with the subject. And now I, I know it's a loaded question, but can you explain or outline the differences between capitalism and socialism and Marxism and, and communism? And, and obviously, I'm, I'm sure listeners have heard all of these terms before, especially when used by politicians as perhaps a, a critique or an insult. Uh, but I would like to start off our conversation by having clear definitions of these concepts. And I think that's critical because you, you often hear politicians or often hear or see these terms used on social media uh, interchangeably, which is obviously not accurate. So uh, can you give us a, a kind of a broad overview of these these different concepts? Capitalism and socialism are, uh, I think the first thing that's important about them is that they're usually terms that describe ownership. So who owns firms? Um, are firms socially owned by some group? That might be the most basic definition of socialism. Or are groups privately owned by individuals, uh, families, individual investors, you know, private equity, even if it's, or even if it's um, sort of on a publicly traded company, uh, banks. Um, Capitalism is a descriptive term for, right, global capitalism the way it is now. Most, most firms in the world are owned by uh, private individuals. Um, and so capitalism is a term that's really originally popularized by Karl Marx uh, to describe the capitalist mode of production and describes the way the world is. It's, the, it's this global state of affairs that we're all um, familiar with. And so when we think about socialism, we think about alternatives. So now this is a problem because there are many alternatives to capitalism, right? And socialism usually describes, uh, it can describe local circumstances and exceptions, right? Where things are socially owned and it's you know, outside of capitalism, but can also describe purely hypothetical, purely theoretical ideas. 
Um, so what, what might social ownership mean? What might some of these alternatives be? Here are two examples, right? So take, for example, Cuba. Uh, in Cuba, 70 plus percent of Cubans uh, work in the public sector. Uh, the state of Cuba owns that many productive enterprises and firms in Cuba. Um, so that seems like socialism and the social ownership is through the state under the aegis of the state. That, that might, you know, is one thing that socialism can mean. But you can also imagine, um, maybe I think, I think people are widely familiar with it, actually, this, film, this Spanish firm, this Basque firm, Mondragon. Um, Mondragon is a, a, a conglomeration of different workers' cooperatives where workers own the firms themselves. Um, however, they have to compete with normal for-profit, privately-owned firms, right? And so a lot of the way that Mondragon is managed look a lot like any other company. So Noam Chomsky will say that, oh, that's worker-owned, but it's not worker-managed. Okay, but it can still be socialism, right? Because the, the group owns it. And yet these things look totally different, right? So socialism only refers to ownership. Capitalism only refers to ownership. But even when you're just thinking about who owns it, you can mean something totally different. Let, let, me, let me actually interrupt there and ask, the, like, a, I think, really straightforward question then is, um, can private enterprise then exist within a socialist system? I mean, is there still room for a market-based economy? Does prop, private property uh, still exist? And I, I only ask this on behalf of listeners who might say, oh, there's socialist, the government's going to take away everything you own, right? But that's not entirely accurate, is it? Well, it depends what kind of socialist system, right? So there's, there's no single way that socialist systems are envisioned, right? Um, anarchists might be socialists if they say that workers should own their own firms, but they're, they're not thinking of a... Of a you know, system of state ownership. So, okay, think of a country like Cuba, a country like Belarus. Um, those are sort of holdovers um, from Marxist-Leninist states of the 20th century with these enormous public sectors. And then you can say, well, can you have private enterprise there? Well, well yeah, you know, roughly 30% of people in Belarus and Cuba um, don't work for the state. You know, they work for, I suppose, privately owned firms in the private sector. Now, but what does that mean? That that might not mean that you can open up any kind of private business in those 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 states. I mean, regulation might be, you know, what businesses you can and can't own is another question, not who owns it. Um, so there might not be space to compete with, you know, Cuba if you want to build a railroad, because how are you going to compete with the sort of state-owned railroad? Uh, you know, if they have railroads in Cuba, I've, 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 as a good American citizen, I've never been. Um, that, that would like to go someday uh, and just see. And then there are also states that we don't usually think of as socialist, maybe like uh, kind of OECD countries like Norway, where you even have about half as many people. It's still a lot, 35% of people working in the public sector. Um, so, you know, is that is that socialist? So how much how much social ownership, state ownership before we say that, oh, this is a socialist economy? Um, maybe more to the point of your question is that, uh, um, you know, for Karl, Karl Marx, even, okay, not a socialist, uh, importantly, Marxism and socialism being totally different. Um, but even for Karl Marx, personal property is something he accounts for. Um, and just because uh, you have a theory that says that uh, there has to be social ownership of uh, means of production um, doesn't necessarily mean that you have to share your toothbrush with everyone. Uh, in the state, right? So, so thinking about commodities, thinking about items for personal consumption, right? That's very different than thinking about the, the who owns the means of production or productive firms and enterprises. 
can I jump in too with while, while we're talking about Marx, let's talk about Lenin, right? And his idea of the commanding heights, right? This idea popularized by Dan Jurgen and that you have socialism um, and, and the state owns the commanding heights of the economy, but not necessarily, uh, you know, other kinds of enterprises. Okay, so we'll talk about Marx and Lenin. So one reason that Marx isn't a socialist uh, can be found in a, in a work more people should re read, which is Marx's critique of the Goethe program. So the current, um, you know, one of the great socialist parties of the world uh, is the German uh, Sozialdemokratische Partei Deutschlands, uh, you know, the, in, in coalition government right now uh, in Germany. And the roots of that party are in the 1870s and the 1880s. Um, uh, with uh, Ferdinand Lozala's Goethe program. Um, it, it is, it's sent to Marx by uh, some of uh, Marx's closer friends um, whom, whom were kind of under Marx's tutelage at that time. And Marx sort of explodes, right? So the, so the Socialist Party says, well, um, productive enterprises, you know, the, the workers do the work, so they should own the firms and there should be cons uh, uh, community ownership of the means of production and there should be a fair distribution of the goods that they make because, because they do all the work, right? Um, and Marx writes this blistering critique. How do you know what's fair? How do you know what an equal distribution looks like? How do you know what's just, right? Marx doesn't think that um, you know, the commodity fetish of money for Marx is already a problem. The way that we think about goods being equal because they're equal in a cash nexus in an economy. For Marx, that, that, for Marx says that that, that that has the birthmarks of, of the womb of bourgeois society on it. You're not. So Marx, is a, so Marx seems to want something more like a moneyless society. Now, early on from 1918 to 1922, Lenin, Lenin does attempt a, a, a moneyless society. Uh, the workers control their own factories. There's central planning. There's problems because you're in the middle of the Civil War, right? About having, you know, statisticians that say, you know, how many calories do these workers need? How many, you know, what are the goods they need, right? What are all their needs? How do we have a central planner make up for, you know, if you have no cash, you know, how do we know supply and demand without, you know, a clearing price and, and money, right? Um, okay, well, we can have a planner that does it. Um, so at first, Lenin's thinking about, you know, the commanding heights, but even more than just the commanding heights being the principal industries that he, he wants first, he wants to go beyond that because he actually wants a moneyless society. Okay, well, then in 1922, Lenin as a man of compromise is somehow uh, gets short shrift sometimes, but he is. Lenin often compromises for what the party wants. Um, and then, you know, the new economic policy of 1922, we're going to allow right? Uh, uh, some private businesses again, until, you know, Stalin's going to you know, reprivatize them, especially in agriculture. Can you real quick define commanding heights for our listeners? Right. So there's an idea that um, um, big business, large industrial enterprises, finance, uh, if you, if there's community ownership of those, you'll control the economy. One, one reason why um, I'm a little suspicious about uh, thinking about this as a definition of socialism is that, you know, the great economist of, um, of uh, you know, modern, you know, neoclassical welfare state capitalism um, is, is John Maynard Keynes. And at the end of the general theory, Keynes argues that there ought to be uh, a socialization of investment. Um, and he talks about the euthanasia of the rentier class. So, so uh, private investors that are, are speculating, uh, you know, stock markets, et cetera, um, that gradually all of that investment should be brought under uh, uh, control, right? So like heavily regulated 
uh, stock markets and heavily regulated the ways that you can sort of own firms uh, or buy shares in firms, et cetera. So does that make um, Keynes a socialist because he's thinking about socializing investment in firms? Well, some people say yes, and they point to sort of Keynes's earlier write, early writings about you know he's a buoyant Bolshevik at the beginning, and he's he's looking with interest on on the on what Lenin's experiment, and and who wouldn't be? I mean, that was it was really interesting for an economist at the time. Can you can you have an economy without money? Can you um uh, can you you know what what are the limits of central planning? Right. Um, well, we're gonna we're gonna find out what they are in Russia, I suppose. Uh, um, in the 1920s. Um, but I don't think that means Keynes is a, is a socialist, right? I think that means Keynes thinks that uh, capitalists are often, much like Karl Marx believed, their own enemies. Um, and capitalists are going to run firms and, you know, eventually, you know, in Marx's mind, right, uh, pay their workers too little so that workers can't consume things. You run into problems of underconsumption so that, you know, so much of Marx's theory is that capitalism is going to be in crisis. And so much of Keynes's theory is that uh, because of the animal spirits of investors, capitalism is going to be in crisis. But unlike Marx, you know, Keynes wants to protect the system, right? Uh, uh, you just you just can't do everything with private ownership um, because people begin speculating wildly, and firms are overvalued. You have stock market crashes, et cetera. So I got I got to jump in and ask, right? I, I always sort of joke with my students. Maybe it's not a joke. I say Marx was a you know was right about everything critique of his time, industrialization, except capitalism, right? That somewhere, say, maybe Keynes is correct here in saying that capitalism had this amazing ability to adapt and evolve and keep just slipping out of the problems that Marx says are going to, you know, tip us into world revolution. What do you think? Right. I, I think that um, every Marxist, I think, would agree, by the way, right? I think the, the research paradigm of Marxism since Marx has to explain why the crisis of capitalism did not lead to a global revolution in 1848, in 1871, in 1917, and, and so on. Um, and also, um, you know, for many Marxists, why uh, Marxism-Leninism in the Soviet Union didn't turn out uh, perhaps the way that, that, that Marx envisioned uh, society after the revolution uh, uh, turning out. So that, I think, is the the, the problem that Marx is, there, there are problems of Marx's crisis theory. Um, uh, maybe some of those are problems because welfare states were, you know, have been much more successful. Um, just how successful? Well, so successful that they, they, they sort of built up all of this, this middle-class wealth in the United States, according to Piketty. I'm not quite sure that's right, but um, um, just not, you know, everything looks like it's going to get worse and worse as firms become more profitable, capitalists, you know, need to take all of their profit and reinvest it, right? For, for Marx, capitalists aren't free. They're no more free than the working class. They have to reinvest all of their capital. They have to reinvest in machinery. That means wages are going down, you know, more starving, you know, so the revolution's inevitable because of this, you know, at least in Marx's early immiseration thesis and like wage labor and capital, it seems inevitable. Um, you know, but wages don't always go down, right? Sometimes they're stagnant and sometimes they grow up across the board. And, 
you know, you can make an economist today squirm by saying, oh, so, you know, what do you think the macro relation between all the wages in the system and all the capital profits in the system are? Like, is there, what's the correlation between those things? And everyone is going to say, I don't know, man, that's impossible to do. Right. But, but a lot of, um, I mean, that's always the question I ask at parties just to see people. Yeah. Swear. I, I want you to know that I'm there. Yeah. So that's one thing we're only talking about ownership here when we're talking about socialism, who owns it. Um, so, and, and with capitalism, we're only talking about private ownership. That doesn't tell you very much, right. Um, it doesn't tell you anything about regulation. So, uh, you know, the, the Affordable Care Act, if it, if it gives you a tax penalty, so you have to go buy private health insurance on some public exchange. Well, those insurance companies are still privately owned. Is that like a step forward for more capitalism or something like that? Um, as a highly regulated market like that, I mean, it's very different than free market capitalism, but it's still capitalism. You know, someone still privately owns it. But that's not what defenders of capitalism who are defending something more like free market capitalism will defend. And then likewise, something like Mondragon, worker-owned business in a capitalist. It's not every time what socialists are defending, right? We're not, oh, it's not state ownership we're defending, or it's not a worker. But the terms themselves get thrown around without people specifying and disambiguating what exactly, who owns it. And then, you know, we also have to talk about things like regulation, et cetera. I want to stay with some definitional term. And you had mentioned you transitioned from Cuba to mentioning Norway. And I think a lot of people might be surprised to hear, oh, wait, Europe, European countries are, are socialists. Um, and I, I think that kind of is a shock to a lot of people when, when we say that, you know, European countries in many respects are very much socialist. And in fact, it's socialism. And we kind of have touched on this a little bit is, is compatible with many different political systems. In fact, you know, democratic socialist um, political structures. Um, can you talk about that a little bit more? Um, so Norway is an exceptional country in many ways. And I think Norway is an interesting country because when you talk to Americans who are self-described socialists, maybe the Democratic Socialist Party of America, um, um, maybe uh, they're in Congress, Senator Sanders, Representative Ocasio-Cortez, people like that are so self-described. They often talk about the Nordic model. Um, one problem here, you know, academic distinction maybe, but I think an important one is that there are different Nordic models. So um, it, Norway has a much larger public sector. Um, because uh, it was formerly called Statoil, now it's called Equinor, right? The Norwegian National um, Oil Company, state-owned oil company, you know, drills in the North Sea, et cetera, right? Has a ton of employees. It's totally state-owned. That resource wealth is why the Norwegians pay sometimes zero in taxes. Um, uh, that money becomes part of a sovereign wealth fund and a pension fund, et cetera. So you have more sort of state ownership um, in Norway, but you might have less redistribution. So um, Denmark and Sweden have uh, high tax rates on corporations and take-home pay of individuals that gets redistributed into social programs. I would say technically that's not socialist, right? Because the firms are actually privately owned, even if the taxation rates are very high and that wealth is being redistributed. I would say that's, that's redistributionism in a welfare state. So that's sort of an odd thing, right? Norway with maybe less of a social safety net and yet technically more socialist, right? Because you have more state ownership versus uh, Denmark and Sweden, um, where you have more private ownership. And none of this has anything to do with uh, barriers or markets, right? So uh, in Sweden, it might be comparatively easy to start your own company, own it and run it. It might be comparatively deregulated, right? You have more, more market. At the end of the day, though, you, you'll have to uh, redistribute the profits um, for, for social programs. But 
So that's where I think that the Nordic model, there are actually two Nordic models, and sometimes the less socialist one is the one that socialists point to more. So you had, you had, let me push on that or kind of build on that question a little bit. And you're, you're mentioning, we're talking about a lot of European countries here. You're mentioning that there are some publicly owned in, uh, uh, infrastructure and institutions in these, these countries. Uh, you mentioned taxes and redistribution. That leads me to the, I think, the common question, uh, at least a lot of my students will pose is, well, then is the United States a socialist country? If you ask that question to... Um... Uh, to, to students of Ludwig von Mises or students of, of Hayek, it'll, they'll say so. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, uh, you begin going down the road to sort of uh, um, uh, social ownership. Uh, and uh, um, it, it is, in, in fact, um, if you think that socialism is simply what impedes the free market. Um, I want to keep that, you know, at, at least that distinction alive, right? That we're actually only talking about ownership stakes and you might have... Um, um, you know, more economic freedom in a country where you where you do have social ownership, more social ownership of firms, um, because I just want to think about it as ownership. Um, but yeah, it's the, the terms float around, right? They're kind of floating signifiers. Sometimes these are semantic debates, often what's called socialism. It gets wrapped up with other things of the time, right? And uh, certainly one of the things it gets wrapped up with uh, is welfare state politics, which can be called, um, you know, socialistic. So um, you might own a firm, but actually not have that much control over a firm because of um, because of regulation. Well, does that mean we're, you know, are, are we less of a capitalist system because of that? Well, we might need another term to help us describe what's going on there. Can we talk briefly about the history of socialism um, as either um, a, a broad concept or political movement in the United States? And how has it evolved um, to today? How has it changed over the past you know, century or so in the United States? Yeah, that's a great question. Marxism is really important to understand Russian communism and to understand, by extension, the Cold War. That's obvious. But um, Marxism is not particularly important to understand the history of the United States to the degree that Marxism is never a dominant leftist tendency in the United States. Um, why doesn't socialism become a mass movement uh, in the United States? Um, this was uh, in the middle of the 20th century. This is a, a sort of odd piece of political science uh, uh, trivia. Um, there was an American Political Science Association report in 1950 on polarization. Uh, and one of the things about the APSA 1950 report, political science grad students will know it, I suppose, uh, is that they bemoan the lack of polarization. There should be so much more polarization. Why don't we have what were then called responsive parties, right? So the Democratic Party, classic example, is some sort of coalition between Southern Dixiecrats who are very conservative, maybe supporting Jim Crow, maybe, and sort of Northern workers. But what they agree on again, right? They have to make compromises among the two of them, right? You know, Ken Lynn and Johnson get civil rights uh, um, bills passed, et cetera. It becomes a, it becomes a problem. They're not all united. The party isn't responsive in that way. Um, and so, one of the things, one of the reasons why we might not have a consolidated uh, a socialist party is um, uh, because of sectional and regional differences in the country, because of racial differences in the country. Um, you know, the, the, the history of sort of um, um, bonded labor in the South, slavery in the South, et cetera. There's no um, solidarity between 
um, immigrant workers and sort of, you know, old stock minority workers and, uh, you know, longtime white American workers and black workers, that you just don't have that solidarity. Another reason might just be the relative prosperity of the United States during all this time. Um, there's really no reason to think why a worker uh, would be a socialist rather than a capitalist. Uh, Joseph Schumpeter mentioned earlier also points this out. You know, if the trade union can get me more money from a privately owned firm, if I can get more benefits, social ownership isn't the only way to sort of better my life. I can get a better contract, you know, bargaining. Um, and so these things are sort of, you know, mixed up uh, in why the United States doesn't have a sort of broad-based socialist party. There are many other reasons that people, people give, uh, but it doesn't take root. Another thing that's sort of neglected in the history of the radical left in the United States, or the history of the radical left in the United States, why the labor movement isn't a socialist movement. Um, but a, another uh, striking thing about it is anarchism, right? So uh, in the absence of a sort of socialist party that brings workers together, um, you know, you have immigrants on their own and uh, sort of secret societies, right? Bomb throwing, if you can't have a mass party, maybe direct action. So maybe those two things are related. But historically in the United States, anarchism is much more important uh, than Marxism. Um, and then the last thing I'd say is that I, I generally, I think, take this view that um, Marxism, anarchism, uh, um, the, the, those uh, uh, political theories that require uh violent action, direct action for political change, and to skew the democratic process usually happen when the democratic process is not open uh, to, say, democratic socialists and so on. The fact that it's not an alternative in the United States is something that you know bears kind of explanation. There's all sorts of explanation why. Um, the maybe liberal tradition in America, Louis Hartz, maybe the most classic example is that it's in America's America is devoted to certain ideas and principles of private property that are opposed to socialism. So there's something about our political culture that that abhors it as well. Um, but whether you take a view like that, that we have these principles or ideas that are, are anti-socialist in nature, or you think it's something about uh, race or immigration um, or simply the prosperity of America, right? There's why don't why don't we have a sort of mass socialist party? There's a window that you need one, right? I think before World War One. Um, because after the Bolshevik Revolution, after Lenin, the idea of socialism becomes a lot scarier. So if you don't have a mass socialist party before 1917, everyone else has a nice cudgel to wield against it, which is the sort of fear of the sort of corpses in the Soviet Union and the starvation in the early Soviet Union. And socialism becomes a lot more um, um, uh, the, the sort of the, the British University Fabians or the uh, the the socialists of the chair, the sort of Cateta Socialista of Germany, that kind of respectable gentleman socialism of the 19th century is gone, right? And there's another image. And so if you don't, if you don't have it by the World War One years, you don't, you don't get a party like that. There's a window that closes. Maybe a, a listener just kind of like, you know, new to all this. It's like, okay, socialism is not this, this big, scary boogeyman that you hear some political uh, uh, leaders kind of weaponize the term or what I see on social media. There's, in fact, as we kind of learn, there's a lot of gradients uh, and variation in terms of what constitutes socialism, but focusing, like, still remaining focused on the United States. Um, where does it stand then today, right? Um, are there organizations, are there political parties, uh, are there political leaders that um, espouse these kind of ideas? Um, how does it exist today? Good. So, yeah, let me be clear about um, what I'm saying here. Socialism means many things, some of which are bogeymen. 
right? Uh, some of which are abhorrent things, which I take, you know, vi violent seizure of, um, of uh, violent seizure of sort of um, people's places of works, right? Um, and so, so I, I want to disavow some things that are under this great umbrella term socialism. Other things are, are, are quite boring. Um, but the most boring of all seems to think, seems to be what uh, um, Americans uh, uh, in the millennial generation, young Americans think socialism is. Um, so uh, I think if you take polls of millennials today, 70% of them are so said, you know, I would vote for a socialist president. Um, this isn't terribly surprising to me, right? If you're born after the Cold War, the term socialism is going to be less of a bogeyman to you because, yes, there are bogeyman socialists, but the ones that you would think of are sort of gone, right? Um, you know, you still have problems of, uh, of, of starvation, the basic prison camp of North Korea, although I think that's a classic example of a fascist society. That's a different question, though. Um, you have, you have, you know, Venezuela, you have tremendous human suffering under the banner of what's called socialism, but it's not the same, right? Um, and when you talk to people in the Democratic Socialists of America about what they want or, or when their political leaders like Senator Sanders or Representative Ocasio-Cortez seem to be the ones that are most in the news, we talk about what they want, they usually want more of a welfare state, right? Not socialism at all, uh, something that's kind of quite banal, right? They want something more like Sweden than Norway. Hey, um, let, me, let me interrupt, if I may, uh, the Democratic Socialists of America, DSA. Can you explain what that is for listeners? Yeah, so, this, so the Socialist Party of America, um, uh, that was the party of uh, uh, Eugene Debs, uh, I think his four presidential runs, right? One in prison, the one before that was was uh, the, the first time that a socialist got more than a million votes in a presidential election. Um, I think that was the election of 1912. But I'd have to look back. It might've been the prior or the next election. But uh, at the time, and given that there were many fewer Americans then, right, that was, that was, um, that was the moment, right? We, 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 we spoke about after 1917 or after the First World War, um, socialism was going to be a heavier lift in the United States. Um, and it's sort of maximum, um, um, you know, point of amplification in American history uh, was about, uh, about 110 uh, uh, years ago. The Democratic Socialists of America, I think, think of themselves as the sort of successor. I don't think they call themselves a political party because sometimes they endorse candidates within the Democratic Party, sort of like the relationship between the Working Families Party and the Democratic Party in the state of New York, for example, maybe other states. Um, but they're trying to push candidates that are you know, more responsive to things um, that, according to them, socialists want but often just a more robust welfare state and fair distribution. Yeah, that is something socialists have wanted, but it's not socialism that we would use as an academic term that means who owns the firms, right? And so if you don't think about, say, the Affordable Care Act as an advance of capitalism, which, which no one does because those firms were privately owned and they're still privately owned. And the fact that more people have to buy things from them, well, you know, it's less free market capitalism, so the capitalists don't like it. Um, um, but it but it also doesn't you know lead to sort of state ownership or lead to more social ownership of those firms. So um, that that's why I think that uh, the term socialism has come to have a shine on it. But um, what the the sort of Keynesian policies they want, the sort of expansion of the welfare state policies that they want, maybe the word socialism helps. It gives uh, people a sort of frisson of excitement that sort of goes up the spine. Oh, you know, they they these millennials like so. But what they mean by it isn't what, you know, an academic would mean by or, or this. It doesn't mean social ownership of firms at the end of the day. It doesn't mean changing the ownership st ship structure of uh, of American firms. 
I'll just say briefly that you know sometimes this ownership question is an odd one uh, because you can have America, you can have a firm, a capitalist firm that's privately owned, that sometimes, for example, take the example of a manufacturing company that threatens to leave a community unless the workers will buy out 49% of the shares. You will have, if the workers decide to buy out their shares, a more worker-owned firm, although they might not have control. But what you would really end up doing is just threaten to leave with almost a gun to these people's head because you, they'll lose their livelihoods if they don't, to force them to capitalize the firm. In other words, sometimes employee ownership and worker ownership is the most vicious capitalist practice. When, when you can't borrow money elsewhere and need to capitalize your firm, you, you, sell, the, you sell equity stakes or you, you ask the workers to buy an equity stake or else you're going to pick up, you know, pick up stakes, so to say, and leave, right? You're going to leave it. Uh, and so yeah, is it really an, a, an advance of socialism? Well, yeah, I guess it's technically socialism, but it's almost like, you know, it's pretty nasty sort of capitalist practice uh, of sort of hardball to keep, to keep a productive enterprise somewhere. And that's where these terms, when you're actually trying to say what they mean, don't always mean what they're going to mean in, in, in political, political speech. I want to thank you, Professor, for joining us on In Politic. You've really helped us learn uh, about what I think is a really important subject, in, not only in the United States, but really uh, in the world and really clarified uh, how we view uh, socialism today. So thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. It was, a, yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you about these things. Our next guest is Professor Barry Island, a comparative historical sociologist at McGill University. His research explores the changing relationship between social mobilization, political processes, and ideology in advanced capitalist democracies. Uh, Professor Island's work has appeared in a variety of academic journals, including Political Power and Social Theory, Labor Studies Journal, American Sociological Review, Politics, Society, and Labor History, and his most recent book, Labor and the Class Idea in the United States and Canada examines the relative differences between American and Canadian unions. Professor, welcome to Impolitik. Thanks for having me. I mean, I'm just going to jump in here, Barry. You're yes. a socialist. That's what I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So you're, yeah. you're a socialist, and in America, you're saying we have class? What? Yes. In, in America, fact, we do. I yes. think you should explain this. So, um, I mean, there's obviously a variety of ways we can explain we can understand class. Number one, if we just look at sort of data about sort of income inequality, about, um, you know, career mobility, stuff like that, um, you know, inequality in the U.S. is higher than it's been in the past century. But then, you know, if you, you know, since we're talking about Marxism and socialism here, if you sort of look at class through a Marxist lens and look at, you know, Class is not just whether you're poor or rich. It's about who controls the means of production. It's about who owns the machinery, the, um, the what, what, what economists call, you know, the capital, basically. And, and so by that scenario, we do have class. And then also just in a subjective sense, there's increasingly, you know, the polling data shows that there's like much larger percentages that like I've seen as high as like 40% of Americans that will identify as working class. And so it's a much broader category than we tend to think of. Your response, you had noted that, you know, there's, you know, 
certain industries are con- controlled by certain individuals, um, that there's high levels of inequality uh, in the United States. And mm-hmm. I think that might be a good opportunity to kind of help listeners understand what is the difference then between, you know, capitalism and socialism and Marxism? I mean, can we have these, you know, um, inequalities that exist in all three of these different sort of political economies? Um, is there an opportunity to talk about, you know, control or commanding heights, you know, uh, use uh, Daniel Jurgen's phrase, right? Like, you know, can we have certain, um, you know, degree of private enterprise within a socialist system or even a communist mm-hmm. system. I mean, yeah. how do we differentiate between those two? And especially with your work in terms of, you know, focusing maybe on the United States and Canada. This is obviously a huge point of debate and contention. And as I like to um, point out to people, a large part of the process of sort of building a socialist movement actually involves debating what is socialism, right? when Bernie Sanders was running in the primaries and he would be criticized for not being a real socialist or people would, uh, would say like, oh, and, and he doesn't even know what he means when he talks about socialism. The point is, is that, 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 there, that there's this conflict of political visions even within the movement. So, so with that aside, we're left with how I would think about these things. <laughs> so I want to make sure that this is what I you know, Barry Eidlin think about these questions and I'm not giving you sort of the, um, the biblical definition of, of these things. For me, it really hinges on questions of going back to this idea of the control of the means of production, right? So there's sort of the basic machinery that provides um, for life's necessity that makes life possible. So by that definition, you know, a capitalist society is one in which there is a small group that 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 has control over those means of production and then employs others who do not have means of production and therefore are are wage dependent for their daily survival where where things start getting complicated is that there are these sort of programs the government basically raises taxes to provide certain programs that essentially are aimed at at increasing social stability and protecting people from the market. You know, and then so there's a degree to which those programs exist that sort of are designed to sort of insulate people from market fluctuations. And then you sort of get into questions of ownership and who owns what and what shares of you know the broader means of production are owned you know by a greater or lesser group of people. So for me, that's when you start getting into actual socialism. Is when you start talking about worker control over means of production. Is it's a, a world where workers have more of a say in the management of the work that they do. When you are describing the notion of socialism to define it, and you, you admit it can be, you know, kind of mucky in terms of how we define it, how we mm-hmm. classify it. Um, you know, is there a particular threshold at which ah, this is a yeah. socialist country? Yeah. I mean, that, that's tough. But I want to push back on, I think, the contemporary discussion where, you know, people decry a lot of things in the United States. Oh, that's Marxist. That's socialist. That's not the United States. But it seems to me the United States is fundamentally socialist as it 
it stands. And in terms of there is some sort of redistribution of wealth. We have the tax system. We have publicly owned uh, enterprises in the United States, be it rail, Amtrak, right? Or even longstanding kind of organizations such as the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, right? So we have a degree of redistribution of wealth. And then what you were saying earlier, we do have a degree of social services that we provide. We provide public education. So is the United States socialist? Absolutely not. No, I think that the degree that the degree to which you have sort of <laughs> all right social, social I, I love it. I love it. No, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. No, to the degree to which you have. I mean, you know, the, the um, you know, a a just the, the presence of sort of social protections from the market does not equate with socialism. There is a degree to which public ownership you know, plays into things. But I think that, you know, a society like China that has like huge state ownership of the broader economy um, still, you know, like that could be, I mean, again, here I'm treading into these, you know, very heated debates, but, you know, like that could qualify more as like a state capitalism or something like that, you know, but, but, but fundamentally what it boils down to for me is this question of the degree of ownership and control that workers have. So if you work for Amtrak, yes, your boss is the federal government, but you have a boss. You know, if you work for the TVA, you know, you you, you are earning a wage and you have a boss and you have a and you don't and, and if you take away that wage in in US today, you're gonna be in bad shape. Um, you're not going to be able to make ends meet very quickly. So um, the, the, def, the key for you then, if I can interrupt, the key for you then is the status of the working class. I mean, and that goes to your the relationship topic as well. Of, yeah, it goes to the relationship of workers to um, the work that they do and the control that they have and the broader and and what they have to do to make ends meet, right? So I think that this issue of wage dependency is really the the, the critical thing. Let me let me ask a question then, going back or a follow up to my initial question. Um, and so, okay, the United States is um, not socialist um, now. You had alluded to it, um, and I know others have as well. Uh, that Europe is considered a um, social democratic structured society or, you know, the government, mm-hmm. then would you buy the notion that I guess you would not, you would not buy except that Europe is then socialist despite what others have written. Yeah, no, I think that, you know, Europe, Europe has some sort of social democratic characteristics, which, um, you know, have, have faded in recent decades. And certainly in Scandinavia, you have high rates of union membership, you have high rates of public ownership, uh, you have a, a, a generous, um, you know, welfare state that provides a degree of, of social security. But, you know, you still have um, pretty substantial wealth and income inequality, you still have a corporate ownership class, you still have a working class that is largely wage dependent. Uh, in my opinion, I think that that is, uh, uh, that is, more advantageous for more people, right? I think that, you know, it is a generally, the average worker in Sweden will generally have a better 
quality of life than the average worker in the United States um, because of those things. So I would say that, that I would not qualify, characterize that as a socialist country. I would characterize it, however, as a country that has been shaped by the struggle for socialism, right? In that when you look at why countries have or have not adopted these kinds of programs that protect people, like, you know, you can sort of, you know, broadly view them as market protective policies, right? So basically things that will that will make that that will protect people from just being purely exposed to 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 um, you know the free market. These are policies that are developed and emerge as responses to people who are informed by some sort of socialist vision. You can't talk about the emergence of social democratic policies in Scandinavia without talking about the labor mobilizations of the 1930s. Same thing happens to different degrees in other parts of Europe, and it happens in the US and Canada too, right? Like the, the, the vast majority of social policy in the US and Canada merges in this same time period in a different and reduced fashion, which is also a function of, you know, the, the degree to which you know, working class movements are able to sort of exert power in the political sphere. You know, so I, I think that it's important to distinguish between socialist countries and countries shaped by socialist struggle. I guess that that's sort of the, the key point I wanted to make. Can you give us an example of a socialist country? I mean, none that I'm happy with. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Same for democracies. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, come on, yeah, come on. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Pick anyway. I mean, you know, but I mean, like. You know, a country like Cuba would be more uh, considered socialist where there is, you know, like there there are, uh, you know, a, there's a greater degree of social provision. There's a greater degree of social investment in people. There are certain like there are certain local neighborhood councils and stuff like that. You know, like obviously I'm not a huge fan. You know, I'm not I'm not a Cuba expert, you know, but, you know, you can certainly look at like inequality, poverty reduction, um, Certain certain types of sort of technological innovation for social ends, you know, like um, you know, there, there there are problems with the Cuban economy for sure. Um, the people are generally shielded much more from the economic problems, you know, than they are in comparable, you know, Caribbean Latin American countries. Let, right? let, 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 let me interrupt there, and you know, so we we if. To summarize the kind of like how you're viewing or your your take on it, it's like this really kind of um, very subtle gradient as you shift between these different systems with a lot of asterisks in between, you know, in terms of how we actually define each of these or trying to take some of these examples. But then let's let's move to the far end of the other side of the spectrum, I guess, is, you know, we've got, you know, capitalism and socialism. Then how do we then define communism and in, in your, your yeah. take? versus these other systems that we've discussed so far? Like, what are yeah. some defining characteristics? So when you get into the distinction between socialism and communism, you're getting much more into the world. And to my mind, you're much getting much more into the world of rhetorical debate than actual substantive strategy, substantive structures, right? I've struggled to sort of see what the distinctions are myself over many years of 
being on the left. And generally what it comes down to is that it, communism will either mean A, the bad thing that people are criticizing, or B, the sort of way that people who are further to the left will describe what their political vision is um, to denounce their opponents. I have never come across a um, satisfactory definitional distinction. I think that what people tend to mean when they say communism is basically uh, some sort of state-directed society. I think there's two visions of communism as I see it. Number one is sort of like just like state ownership, like just state-directed society, sort of like Brezhnev-era Soviet Union kind of thing. Um, or there is this sort of like utopian vision of the communist society where, you know, class has abolished, the state has withered away. I want to thank you, Professor, for joining us on in politics. You've you've helped us learn about what I think is a really important and challenging topic that clearly is is not as straightforward as many may argue, or really what might be said by uh, politicians or stated on on social media. And I, I think you know one thing we've learned is we have to think very carefully about how not only we define these issues, but how we think of them. So uh, thank you for your time. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Now time for the debrief with Jeff and Matt. So I think one thing that we've learned from these interviews is how difficult it is to define uh, and distinguish uh, socialism from other kind of forms of organization, capitalism and communism. And that's clearly something um, that both guests have alluded to and emphasized. And in fact, you know, Professor Wiley wants to emphasize, wanted to emphasize as well that, you know, our definitions of socialism are both too wide and too narrow. Um, and, you know, I think Professor uh, Eidlin said the same thing in the sense that we've got like these really broad gradients of how we can define socialism as a system with a lot of little asterisks in between as we move across that yeah. spectrum. So it's, it's hard to define this um, despite how casually politicians and how casually it's, it's used in social media or defined in terms of, you know, uh, an aspiration or something that should be avoided that it's un-American. Yeah. I mean, I think what you see here partly is what happens with academics and reality. So reality is always messier than the things that we're trying to construct to explain reality, right? Which we try to make cleaner, um, more narrow, right? Both more broad than, than reality is. Um, and then the words themselves are weapons, right? They've all been weaponized at some point politically. Um, and even more than politically, right? So, so when you say communism to an American, you're thinking in terms of, you know, uh, a, a decades long struggle, right? Um, of a cold war, right? These kinds of things. And so these are not small, um, small problems to have when trying to come up with these definitions. But I think, you know, we've seen in these two episodes, 
is that we've we've gotten some grasp on it, right? It's not about it's not about having a clean definition. It's about having clean questions that remain to ask uh, to understand these things. And I think uh, you know we've seen a lot of good questions raised. You know, I, I struggle with whether or not you know, the United States is a socialist country to some extent. It falls somewhere on that gradient. Um, you know, you, you think Europe is more or less a social democratic structured organization. Yeah, I, I was surprised he said no. And, and Professor sure. Island in that interview, he, he flatly, you know, rejected that notion. Um, his emphasis is obviously on the working class, the role of the workers and their rights and ability to survive in a society separate from, you know, being wage earners. But I wonder if that is uh, placing too much emphasis on that particular factor. I mean, we've got redistribution of wealth in the United States. We have publicly owned entities in the United States and we have social services as well. Right. I mean, these are all a lot of kind of the hallmarks of uh, essentially a social society. I mean, what do you think? Well, I mean, I try to explain this to my students. If you go back to the progressive era, if you remember you know, in high school history on this, they were called progressives for a reason. All of these things that you're talking about, what becomes the social security system, what becomes Medicare, what should be national health care, right? All of these things are put in place in the U.S. first. When this is happening in the 1890s after the great crash in the 1890s and then, and then through, say, 1920, Europe is still an empire, right? It's still monarchical. It, it doesn't have the kind of democracy that we have. And so we're actually building out a social democracy in the States and then it stalls. And when you come after World War II, Europe picks up that mantle and runs with it because they've got millions of, of people that are out of jobs, that are out of housing because of the war. And so they have to provide government housing and government jobs and all these sorts of things to clean up the rubble um, and, and build their societies back. And, and what they emerge with is a social democracy that we see today, whereas the U.S. is still sort of hobbling along on the, on the social democracy that we put together in the 1930s. So I think it's important to remember that the U.S. was first. We were going to be a very strong socialist democracy, and then we lost our way, and Europe is ahead now. I, I think you know, the lesson clearly is that we have to think – more carefully about, you know, how we define it and how these issues are used. And as you said, in one of the interviews, how they are weaponized as well. Um, and I, I don't think that, you know, how they are being used in, in public discourse is necessarily fair, um, especially when it's, it's used as a kind of a negative critique of another side's platform or their policies or their aspirations for society. Uh, I, I don't think it's this, is boogeyman that a lot of people have made it out to be. No, and I think it's, it's interesting for you and me, right? Here we are, professors of national security, and we are unabashedly sitting here for all the world to hear. We're, we're talking about socialism, right? And we don't think it's antithetical to the United States. We don't think talking about it makes us not, you know, professors of national security, right? Not patriotic Americans. Um, because also understanding these distinctions and how it gets played out in the world helps us understand a lot of conflict in the world, right? What happens in Syria when, when you have climate change causing a drought, causing millions of men to be without what? Without work, right? The core, the core tenant here in this question of, of a social democracy and then boom, you know, you have, you have this conflict. And I think, uh, I think far too many Americans think that conflict happens because people hate each other um, and these sort of thousand year old hatreds between the Sunni and the Shia and things like that. Um, and it hurts us. 
uh, in our foreign policy. It hurts us in our education when we look out in the world and we see that and we don't see these these complexities, right? Oh, we're maybe we're socialist. I don't know. Maybe Europe is too. Maybe you know. So I, I think I think those are the things that people need to be asking themselves. No, that that's an excellent point. That's that's worth repeating. the The discussion and analysis of socialism, especially within the United States, it, it's not quote unquote bad, and nor should it be considered you know un-American, right? These are important political and economic questions that are worthy of analysis, both normatively and I would argue empirically. Um, so with that said, I, I want to thank everybody for listening to this special episode of Impolitik. We hope you enjoyed listening to our interview uh, of two different guests. It's a, it's a format we're considering to become more of a regular feature of this podcast and maybe even expand to more of a debate style format where guests with completely different and contrasting viewpoints uh, share their thoughts on pressing issues facing the world today. So uh, please be sure to send us feedback and, and share your thoughts on whether or not you uh, you like this new format. Also, of course, uh, please be sure to like and subscribe for future episodes and you know, be sure to give us a rating as well. It really helps us out. Thank you very much, everybody. And until next time, thank you for listening.